Good evening. And the next speaker in this series is me. The next speaker in this series is I. Uh, tomorrow night in the rotunda at six. Tonight's speaker, uh, celebrated in story and song, frequently to be found at this podium and many others. One of the most distinguished exponents of the history and practice of rare books in this country, Daniel Traster, talking about one of his favorite subjects, dead books. In my mind's eye, I still see a Terry Bellinger thinner, with more hair, and wearing either a blue or a red bandana. <laughs> traipsing through Philadelphia, traipsing through the corridors of Columbia University where he started out this program and others, and I think, well, I was thinner then. I had more hair too. And at least I didn't have a red or a blue bandana. <laughs> I look out at crowds like this, and I look out at the setting that Virginia has become during the past several years that Terry's program has been here, and I keep thinking, this is something for which none of us is sufficiently grateful. Thanks, Terry, for the introduction. Thanks for a lot of other things, too. Please let me know if you have trouble hearing me. I, I can't hear whether these are working or not? Does this help? <laughs> Does this help? <laughs> Gotta have young eyes for this business. My sister gave me a t-shirt Advertising the Northshire Bookstore of Manchester Centre, Vermont, where I have never been, its back shows the silhouetted figure, white on black, of a little boy. Wearing a straw hat, he strides vigorously towards the viewer's left, stepping over the vaguely suggested backdrop of a rural field. He holds a shut book thrust forward towards the left in his right hand. The design, enclosed within a circle, surrounded by words identifying the bookstore, stands out sharply against the black cloth of the T-shirt. The silhouetted figure of the boy wants detail, which tells us that we're looking at modern design. Had the figure not been abstracted in this way, we might have thought we were looking at a magazine advertisement from, say, about 1913, the little boy not a reader, but a boy scout or little Lord Fauntleroy, the object in his outthrust right hand, not a book, but baking soda, cocoa, soap, or whatever, the advertiser's comestible du jour. It's a handsome t-shirt, and I was glad to get it. Its front is also nice. Fittingly, for a t-shirt advertising a bookstore, it contains words. Also white, on black, set flush left and ragged right, 
They're printed in, thank you, Michael, 29 millimeter high caps. A no-name display font lacking distinction or character, but nonetheless readable. Put on the t-shirt or display it. The person you're facing can read. A room without books is like a body without soul. Cicero. My sister, as after all these years she should, knows her brother well. I love this t-shirt, and it even fits. And she doesn't have to clean around the piles of books or dust the many shelves that litter the walls and floors of my house, but are far less prevalent in hers. She's got lots of books on lots of shelves, but no piles. For her, this shirt is both apt and funny, and it comments on the foibles of someone else. A room without books is like a body without a soul. Cicero. Golly. For those of us who live our lives with books, uplifting little taglines such as this one are part of the stuff of our daily reality. As Tom Lehrer once said, if in a slightly different connection and about other little taglines, it makes a fellow proud to be a soldier. Some of the tags are not unequivocally positive, of course. Of making many books, there is no end. Thus saith the preacher, adding, as is less frequently recalled, and much study is a weariness of flesh. A dry irony survives even translation into English. You can see why the Northshire Bookstore of Manchester, Vermont, chose not to, to quote scripture, at least not this scripture, on its t-shirt. How? Living as he did not only before print, but also before the codex, could the preacher ever have seen enough books to think any such thought? But he was right. Of making many books, there is no end. And thus saith I, too, especially after days when sitting at a computer, using the telephone, or annotating hundreds of tiny pieces of paper, I spend yet more thousands of institutional dollars, or some tens or hundreds of my personal ones, to add books to the shelves of the large institutional library that employs me, or to, well, nowadays, to add to the floors of my house. You don't need to go to Bartlett's or to the Oxford Dictionary of Quotations for such taglines, although I've found some taglines in these sources, too. You happen, let us say, to be reading, something that people who live with books do from time to time, and are toddling through one of your average 12-volume 20th century English novels, this one, Antony Pohl's A Dance to the Music of Time. The title of one of its 12 parts sticks movingly in your mind. Books do furnish a room. Right. Tell me about it. The Oxford Dictionary of Quotations, by the way, will tell you about it, citing Paul's title as its source for this phrase, which I don't believe for a minute, and offering up, as well, a comparative reference to a pithy little molette from the 1855 memoirs of Lady Holland, no furniture so charming as books. Not entirely inexplicably, the Oxford Dictionary of Quotations does not quote Flann O'Brien on this point writing about someone whom he identifies only as a newly married friend, O'Brien remarks, whether he can read or not, I do not know, but some savage faculty for observation told him that the most respectable and estimable people usually had a lot of books in their houses. A middleman buys loads of books on French landscape painting for the friend's shelves, 
not one ever opened or touched. Books as furniture, books as personal landscape, what's the difference? Or you're looking at the wall in your office where you have put up, after having had it framed, a cute little Sandy Boynton poster. Sandy Boynton's cute little Muppet-like creature has climbed to the top of a cute little bookcase and is eating cute little books. You can read shelf in her poster. That is, you can look at the titles of the books on her little shelves. Here is Moby Dick. It is, in fact, the book that the Muppet-like creature is eating. Its outstretched left leg lies atop War and Peace under its left calf. Its left heel rests on Middlemarch, itself on top of Aristotle's Poetics. The lower shelves contain works by Chaucer and Shakespeare, Dante, Ibsen, and Shaw. The Golden Bough, Northrop Fry's Anatomy of Criticism, Sick, and A.C. Bradley's Shakespearean Tragedy, Double Sick. Walter Jackson Bates, John Keats, and Daniel Burston, famous canary, The Americans. Rabbit Run and V sit on these shelves along with many other cute books. Some have the words Boynton and Mac on their spines, images of man, for instance, or introduction to the poem. In order to understand the presence on Boynton's shelves of these books, you need to know that the Boynton their spines name represents her act of homage not to herself, but to her father, a man who taught English literature at a Philadelphia preparatory school. For many years, he wrote, together with the then Sterling Professor of English at Yale University, Maynard Mack, textbooks for secondary school students of English. Most people who look at the poster don't need to understand that illusion. They get the poster's bibliophilic point from the many other far more obvious books displayed on Boynton's shelves and from the words Sir Francis Bacon's, as it happens, displayed at the poster's top, above the cute little Muppet-like creature eating cutely away at the books. Some books are to be tasted, others to be swallowed, and some few to be chewed and digested. Sir Francis Bacon. All Boynton has done is to literalize Bacon's metaphor. Many tags about books tug fitfully at our memories, some we absorbed before we thought much about them at all, and their dimly recalled residue colors our thinking about books to this day. If we happen to have been raised within the context of a Christian household, perhaps we associate books inaccurately, but nonetheless memorably, with worthiness. Who is worthy to open the book and to loosen the seals thereof? a passage we read in Revelation. More generally, if we were raised within the warming context of Protestantism's originary myths, we learned early on that reading, books, the book, are our heritage. If we have grown up to become bad Protestants, we may undervalue the book, yet value other books anyway. The scriptures, thought I, what are they, a dead letter? A little ink and paper of three or four shillings price, Alas, what is the scripture? Give me a ballad, a news book, George on horseback, or Beavis of Southampton. Give me some book that teaches curious arts, that tells of old fables, but for the holy scriptures I cared not. That from John Bunyan's Sighs from Hell. If not Protestants, but Jews, the people of the book, well, we are our own tag, sort of self-literalizing metaphors. An altogether different upbringing, we could call it Roman Catholic, might have exposed us to Hilary Bellick's A Bad Child's Book of Beasts. Its dedication 
with an irony that surely some children miss, also associates books with holiness and treasure. Child, do not throw this book about. Refrain from the unholy pleasure of cutting all the pictures out. Preserve it as your chiefest treasure. As students in college and university, we all once upon a time read, and dutifully and of course, thrilled to Areopagitica, as good almost kill a man as kill a good book, who kills a man kills a reasonable creature, God's image, but he who destroys a good book kills reason itself, kills the image of God as it were in the eye, and better still, books are not absolutely dead things, but do contain a potency of life in them to be as active as that soul was whose progeny they are. Nay, they do preserve as in a vial the purest efficacy and extraction of that living intellect that bred them. How wonderfully apt, how moving. No wonder the British Library published a volume about the history of books their production and reception entitled A Potency of Life. The very words remind us of the cosmic significance of the subject. How many of his dutifully enthusiastic fans ever notice Milton's qualifier, A Good Book? The Anglo-American champion of press freedom was not, one may vaguely recall, entirely convinced that, for example, Roman Catholic books qualify as good. A surprising number of bibliophilically heartwarming tags echo influ influential Milton's limiting concept of the good book. Milton himself in Areopagitica writes of a good book as the precious lifeblood of a master spirit embalmed and treasured up on purpose to a life beyond life. Martin Tupper's 1838 proverbial philosophy, although less well-known than Areopagitica, makes just as good grist for the mill of the Oxford Dictionary of Quotations, where we find Tupper calling a good book the best of friends, the same today and forever. Personally, I wonder about Tupper's criterion. Does unchangeability really make for a value, a quality we value in our friends? Two years later, speaking in support of the London Library, Thomas Carlyle remarked that a good book is the essence of a human soul. Well, really, why quarrel with the qualifier? Who would write in praise of bad books? Books are a load of crap, writes Philip Larkin in his study of reading habits, but I don't think he is praising them for this attribute, and anyway... Surely that's just Larkin, seen here in one of his more dyspeptic moods, sweeping all away without distinction or discrimination. And who remembers that line anyway? I hope some of you remember much better lines in Annus Mirabilis. It is worth remembering, however, that Larkin, although one of the century's finest English poets, earned his living not from poetry, but as a university librarian. More sensibly, more judiciously, Ruskin separates books of the hour from books of all time. F.M. Cornford singles out a specific kind of publication only for censure. University presses exist and are subsidized by the government for the purpose of producing books which no one can read. <laughs> and they are true to their high calling. <laughs> 
Roberto Eco broadens Cornford's narrow brush even as he loads it with tar and writes, most of the books which are displayed in a bookstore should be defined as products of vanity presses, even if they are published by a university press. <laughs> a reiterated theme of many writers is the danger of too much exposure to books, all books. Much study is a weariness of flesh. All we get from reading, Biron informs us in Love's Labor's Lost, is base authority from others' books. The man who reads without superior spirit and judgment, Milton reminds us, is in danger of becoming deep first in books and shallow in himself. A mere scholar, Defoe Carps, is a mere bookcase, a bundle of letters, a head stuffed with the jargon of languages, a man that understands everybody but is understood by nobody. How positively healthy, from this point of view, the attitude of, depending on which attribution you prefer, King George III or the Duke of Cumberland or William Henry, Duke of Gloucester. Another damn thick square book. Always scribble, 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 eh, Mr. Gibbon? No danger of lumber in that head or those heads. Books are a load of crap. When we recall tags such as these, it is to lay no palm of praise at the presumably gouty feet of, say, King George III or the Duke of Cumberland or William Henry, Duke of Gloucester. In our recall, it is their short-sightedness and stupidity contrasted against Gibbon's ongoing greatness that gives the tag its special piquancy. And rightly, Gibbon, after all, is among the authors immortalized by Boynton's poster. Yet, one will annoyingly wonder how many of us have ever sat down and read Gibbon. Can there really be any choice between our response to the heartfelt sentiment of W.H. Auden in the dyer's hand? Some books are undeservedly forgotten. None are undeservedly remembered. And the galling cynicism of Gustave Flaubert in a letter to Ernest Feydeau in late 1857, books, he writes, are made not like children, but like pyramids, and they're just as useless. And they stay in the desert. Jackals piss at their fit, and the bourgeois climb upon them. <laughs> Even if we find ourselves uneasily desirous of checking Fowler to see whether Auden's none are are or are not a grammatical solecism in our hearts, we know his sentiments right, whatever might be said of his grammar. Books make sense of life. Sick Julian Barnes and Flaubert's parrot. Yes, they do. Good books, anyway. We know why Fitzgerald's Omar found a loaf of bread, a flask of wine, thou beside me singing in the wilderness, and a book of verse, paradise enow. We'd find it paradise, too. Our hearts uplift when we find an American president. Gad! An American president? Who even knew they could read? <laughs> Writing a la mode de Franklin Delano Roosevelt, books cannot be killed by fire. Books die. People die, but books never die. No man and no force can abolish memory. Maybe if I did for a living what Franklin Roosevelt used to do, I would believe him. And maybe if he did for a living what I do for a living, he'd never have said anything quite so stupid. It's unlikely. 
Never entirely impractical or blindly idealistic, wily Mr. Roosevelt was speaking not truth but propaganda when he delivered these sentiments in a message to the booksellers of America on May 6, 1942. I was not yet born, though barely, and itself a bare five months after America's entry into World War II. He went on, quite practically, to add, In this war we know books are weapons, and it is a part of your dedication always to make them weapons for man's freedom. This is not the voice of some sky-gazing liberal intellectual, some reader. It is the voice of the person who appointed Archibald McLeish as the government's propaganda czar, the voice of the head of a government that saw to the production of tens of millions of copies of armed services editions for the sake of morale, and to the establishment of the Office of War misinformation. Still, and all personally, I put my money on swift. Books, like men their authors, have no more than one way of coming into the world, but there are 10,000 to go out of it and return no more. Books never die? Really, Franklin. I don't imagine that, despite his close friendship with sometime librarian of Congress and lawyer, poet, and propagandist Archie McLeish, Roosevelt ever had himself wheeled through the stacks of Congress's library. I might be wrong about this point. It hardly seems worth checking. But had he bothered, surely no sentiment quite so stupid could ever have passed his pen, however practical his justifications for saying it might have been. Large libraries, even small to medium-sized libraries, such as the four or so million volume one in which I work, are full of dead books. Crap. Thank you, Mr. Larkin. It's not that the majority of their books rarely circulate. It's that they never circulate. One's mind boggles at the prospect that even if they ever used to circulate, they ever will do so again. In fact, one's imagination is simply too limited to conjure up any such prospect at all. No one has ever, who has ever wandered through a largish library can be unaware of this truth. In one aisle, the meanderer encounters mountains of mute, inglorious Miltons who, once upon a time, unhappily not mute, not only wrote, but also actually published, e.g., Richard Glover, author of Leonidas, 1737, the world's dullest epic, sick Boynton's, Boynton Pear's co-editor, Maynard Mack, whom no one has read for over a century, sick Virginia Woolf's daddy, Leslie Stephen, writing nearly a century before Mack, over a century before me, and by the way, he's right, I've tried. In another you confront rows of novelists whose names mean nothing, whose titles promise less, volumes that seem unavailable evidence last to have circulated sometime during the spring semester of 1937, if ever. I write not of books originally written or still available only in the forbidding recesses of a foreign tongue, or, much worse, a learned one. Glover, after all, almost wrote English, and English was the language of, let us say, the American novelist and poet Meredith Nicholson, whose very name was unknown to me until I reached my mid-fifties several hundred years ago. I was five when he died in 1947, full of years, and believe it or not, of literary honors. The only circulations any of his novels have had at my institution are mine. No place 
Johnson remarks in The Rambler, affords a more striking conviction of the vanity of human hopes than a public library. But maybe you need to work in one to realize the extent to which Johnson here, as on other occasions too, got it dead right. In one sense, the point is so obvious that one wonders why anyone should care, but the point is not obvious anymore. Individual books are so quickly lost to sight in the general ocean of books that we can retain our state of virginal innocence about their mortality with almost as much ease as in a medically sophisticated modern hospital environment we can retain a state of virginal innocence about our own mortality. Swift, not at all innocent in any of the ways we are innocent, unsurprisingly connects both mortalities. We tend to recall neither of them. What our innocence means at a time when issues of canonicity have become politically and culturally troublesome is that we speak frequently and noisily about how some books move in and despicably out of the canon, the obviously permanent structure that organizes the hierarchies within which we read whatever the ages have deemed worthy of our attention. Canonical Gibbon, for instance, with whose decline and fall we who possess degrees attesting to our learning are all intimate. Such talk is far from fruitless. The ways in which works move in and out of canonicity are intrinsically fascinating, even though the stories we tell about those ways tend to be social rather than literary tales. While scholars, their political friends and enemies, and the odd and occasional general reader talk such talk, university and independent research libraries, colleges, public libraries, and archives obligingly build new buildings to house, and acquire ever more complex systems to enable readers to locate the ever-increasing amounts of materials they are required to house or they buy or contract with off-site storage facilities to warehouse materials that, not dead, are in low demand. <laughs> If 20th century physicians and their eager publics seem unable to come to grips with the notion that people die, 20th century librarians and their fans seem equally unable to come to grips with the possibility that books die too. Quoting a tagline, people die but books never die, is all very well as an expression of noble sentiment and it is inexpensive too. Buildings, on the other hand, actually cost money to build and to staff. If we are interested in what makes books live, or merely and ignobly interested in containing the costs associated with their immortal accretion, it might be worth paying at least a little attention to the question of what allows or causes books to die, as it happens more die than live, as anyone who thought about the matter for a fraction of a second might have supposed. Some books die for obvious reasons, like people. They grow old, and eventually they die. No one needs a guide to 17th century memory exercises any longer. Those with a need for the service manual for a 1924 Pierce Arrow are also likely to be few. An instructional booklet for a 128 kilobyte personal computer is not useful nowadays for even the least computer literate of your friends and acquaintances. Reports on prison conditions in 18th century Philadelphia, 
or canal and railroad construction in 19th century Middle Atlantic states, or on prostitution in pre-World War I Storyville may all provide important data for scholars whose retellings of such topics may get read. But aside from the scholars who use them for their own work, they sit on shelves untouched and unregarded. 19th century anthologies of sentimental poetry or morally uplifting publications by various religious tract societies. 18th century guides to conduct for young women, men and women. 17th century sermons on the seductions of Presbyterianism. Who willingly and without duress faced by, say, the nowadays increasingly exorable need to write a doctoral dissertation would ever pick up such books. If there was a single issue that dominated the half century from 1580, as I read in Julia Briggs' book about Renaissance English history and literature intended for university students beginning their study of these subjects, it was religion. Yet, with the exception of the authorized version of the Bible, that is the King James Version, little of the literature still read today reflects this preoccupation. More than half the books published in the reign of Elizabeth concerned religion, but today the many theological tracts, sermons, and books of advice and instruction are hardly ever reread or reprinted, sick Briggs. I suppose that in an age of candor, this is indeed news fit to give the young. In my day, oh, tempera, oh, mores, our instructors never told us any such thing. And I am sure we were better scholars for their white lies. Briggs's white lie is in accepting the Bible, which, at least in my experience, is a large and formidably foreign text to the majority of my students and colleagues. Other books die after having been mugged. We like to recall the critics' failures with, say, Byron and Keats, but their successes are noteworthy as well. In the late 1950s, for example, Dwight MacDonald did such a good and famous job on James Gould Cousins by Love Possessed that, despite the efforts of a few enthusiasts such as Matthew Brookley, the novel and the novelist seem both to have passed on, at least for a while, to a better place, or at least to one that is not ours. Some books physically disintegrate or people discard them before their time, after their time, who knows? Who cares? Writing in The New Yorker, Mark Singer, describing what is called a preservation microfilming project at America's greatest research library, simultaneously describes one of the ways in which a bureaucracy that normally might have seemed designed to save books can nonetheless and as a matter of sheer bureaucratic well-intentioned inertia, destroy them instead. The protester about whom Singer also writes, a dealer in earth-moving equipment named Michael Zinman, looks mildly eccentric, and by the way, is in fact much more than mildly eccentric, <laughs> for being worried about such matters. Is there an issue here? Had anything been wrong, we certainly should have heard. Auden again. Other books simply stop speaking to anyone at all. Once popular, they cease to have any attraction to readers whose requirements for novelty supersede their requirements for familiarity. Lacking other distinguishing characteristics that tend to keep books afloat, a wonderful writing style, an ability with the language, 
a topic of burning urgency, brilliantly treated, great illustrations, a preface by a writer who has retained currency, a hell of a yarn. They sit on library shelves for years, the acids in their papers slowly bringing their physical existence to a state equivalent to their spiritual existence. Some books speak to no one even on their appearance. Everyone knows of such books. My own favorite examples in this kind are the books published regularly by university presses. Vanity presses, as Echo calls them, whose high calling it is, as Cornford said, to produce unreadable books. A vast system of tenure and promotion gluts libraries with stuff that almost literally no one wants, including their own authors, books and periodicals that occasionally elicit reader statistics in the single digits. <laughs> Forests die for the sake of T&P committees at hundreds of institutions throughout North America, but even on T&P committees, none but the most dedicated or crazy read the mountains of stuff they are handed by each prospective candidate for tenure. And even the few genuine geniuses of academic prose find times winged chariot hurrying near just behind the printed offspring of their intelligent brows. When a graduate student specializing in Renaissance literature in the 1960s and 70s, I came upon a book that considered A.C. Bradley's 1904 study of Shakespearean tragic character, a book celebrated in Boynton's poster, I wondered why anybody would waste time reading Bradley, let alone about Bradley. A few years ago, I came upon a collection of essays about Shakespeare written by Boynton Pear's co-editor, Maynard Mack, the great Shakespeare critic of my generation. A learned colleague looked at the book and groaned. You're reading that? She asked. Dead, dead, dead. I did not bother to remark that Mr. Mack had, after all, directed her own dissertation. That is the stuff for a different story than this one. There are even books that we, well, some of us, would like to kill. To kill outright, that is, not simply to wound, in the way that Dwight MacDonald, although he wounded by love possessed, left copies of it floating around, however grievously maimed, for such benighted folk as Matt Brookley to find and try to restore to canonical health. Mein Kampf, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, books, need I say, much worse in every sense that matters than the sort of book represented by Cousin's novel would surely fall into such a category. For the nonce, enthusiasm for such once popular works as these seems to be confined to fringe elements of society. These books and their ilk may not be precisely dead, but they live on to the extent that they do in a sort of vampirical hibernation, or like smallpox germs in a test tube, except that vaccines for their toxins do not exist. Less virulently disgusting books, such as Little Black Sambo and Dr. Doolittle, have also been shot to death for their racism. Who could imagine a 1998 movie version of Dr. Doolittle that did not inoculate itself against the racism of its source by giving us a black, not a white, version of its title character. Booth Tarkington's once famous Penrod, 
sublimely unconscious of its own anti-Semitism and racism, is another book that seems unlikely to make a comeback anytime soon as an American children's classic. Yet one must be careful with such judgments 30 years ago. Whoever would have dreamed, aside from the conservative author of books to furnish a room, that La Retour de Kim was in the wings. And it's here. Exemplary of the book that deserves shooting in our own time is The Turner Diaries, written by someone calling himself Andrew MacDonald. The novel's opening pages read, I'll never forget that terrible day, November 9th, 1989. They knocked on my door at five in the morning. I was completely unsuspecting as I got up to see who it was. I opened the door and four Negroes came pushing into the apartment before I could stop them. One was carrying a baseball bat and two had long kitchen knives thrust into their belts. The one with the bat shoved me back into a corner and stood guard over me with his bat raised in a threatening position while the other three began ransacking my apartment. My first thought was that they were robbers. Robberies of this sort had become all too common since the Cohen Act with groups of blacks forcing their way into white homes to rob and rape, knowing that even if their victims had guns, they probably would not dare use them. The one who was guarding me flashed some kind of card and informed me that he and his accomplices were special deputies for the, I love this, Northern Virginia Human Relations Council. <laughs> they were searching for firearms, he said. Racist, sexist, anti-Semitic, and paranoid on the subject of the ways in which big government intrudes itself into the lives of ordinary, decent, white, and Christian Americans, this book seems to have found its ideal audience in Timothy McVeigh, currently awaiting administration of a sentence of death for his role in the bombing of the Murrah Federal Office building in Oklahoma City. The Turner Diaries is said to have inspired him to rebellious action. Who would, if opportunity offered, keep such a book from dying? Its publisher, it so happens, in an introduction to the 1996 reprint from which I quote MacDonald's pellucid prose, offers a ringing defense of the ideals espoused by Milton in Areopagitica and subsequently enshrined, not to say embalmed, in the First Amendment to the United States Constitution. We live in a nation where we have the right to know, Lyle Stewart states, going on to quote Orrin J. Tyker, president of the American Booksellers Foundation for Free Expression. The gist of Tyker's argument is that even offensive and objectionable material is protected by the First Amendment. In her book, Only Words, widely disparaged when it appeared, law professor Catherine McKinnon suggests that the First Amendment might not be the blanket excuse for keeping all books alive that Stuart Tyker and First Amendment absolutists believe. McKinnon is less concerned with printed forms of political speech, however much such forms might assault the primary values of a liberal civility, than she is with pornography and its assault upon the personhood of women. Pornography reduces women, she argues, to sexual objects. It produces in its readers a loss of sense of women's essential humanity and selfhood, not simply speech, and under the terms of the First Amendment protected, pornography thus crosses the line into action and can therefore be controlled by laws in just the same way and for just the same reasons as laws control my desire to travel at 85 miles per hour on a clear sunny day northbound on Madison Avenue. <laughs> if, without shedding a tear, I would, and by the way, 
If I could, I genuinely would. Remove from the face of the earth all copies of Mein Kampf, the protocols, Gobineau on the inequality of the races, and other books of this ilk. So McKinnon, I presume, would treat Aretino's Imodi, Butler's Dildoides, the anonymous Victorian classic The Pearl, and other books of that ilk, to say nothing of such cinematic glorifications of the human spirit as Deep Throat and Debbie Does Dallas. Perhaps we all have the odd book or kind of book that we think so irremediably awful that given a realistic shot at doing so, we would deep-six it in a minute. And perhaps we're right to have such desires. It is, at the very least, conceivable that the world, which, after all, is a pretty bad place, would be a better place without these sorts of books, giving legitimacy and permanence to ideas and attitudes that we would all be better off without. We would, I suspect, lose a lot of books in the process of such intellectual cleansing. Books, like men their authors, Swift said, have no more than one way of coming into the world, but there are 10,000 to go out of it and return no more. It seems to me time to think about the 10,000 ways books die. Neither our societal nor our professional rhetorics leave us very much room to do so. Whether President Roosevelt really believed that books never die, I do not know. He said it. Perhaps he really believed it. We do know of some occasions when presidents have spoken words they meant. What troubles me is not that Roosevelt believed it. It is that we believe it, even though it is, in the first place, demonstrably not true. And, in the second place, it is really not something we want to be true, even though the truth of our desires in this respect is not one we easily admit even to ourselves. We face real problems, however, and they're going to result in the death of many books. Most obviously, our libraries simply cannot continue to grow indefinitely. No one can look at all the stuff, crap, if I may quote university librarian Philip Larkin once again, that comes into them year after year and really suppose that the growth processes to which we've become accustomed, even in austere economic conditions, can continue much longer. Enthusiasts may see no problem. Books, after all, are good things. If two books are good things, then four are very good, and eight must be terrific, right? But someone has to pay. To pay cash money, as we used to call it before it simply became credit card money, which is a different thing, for the space, the buildings, the light, the heat, the temperature and humidity controls, the people, the management tools, the provision of access to the books that simply keep on accumulating. And there does seem to be a growing body of evidence that someone has begun to tire of this situation. The Library of Congress now has about 20 to 22 million printed books. What's it going to look like when it's twice that size? Does anyone believe it will run better then than it runs now? In fact, does anyone actually believe that it will grow to twice its current size in its holding of printed books? For there are other changes in addition to the costs associated with size that make for problems too. Reformatting printed materials, whether to preserve them or to make them accessible for an electronic and digital era, has been a hot topic for more than a decade, those of, and nowhere more so than at Virginia. 
those of us who are traditional book people don't worry seriously about this issue. We know that we're never going to curl up at night with a computer screen, and therefore the book, in its codex form, its utility successfully demonstrated for the past millennium, will continue to be the format of choice for readers of all sorts for the foreseeable future. This is a comfortable insight into our collective futures. I happen not to believe it. I think we are on the verge of choosing to lose a lot of what the past has produced by our choice not to reformat and digitize it. We are making such choices daily and thoughtlessly and unsystematically, overly confident of the long-term viability of our own cultural bias towards print. Conscious people plan for change. Unconscious people drift with it. Of course, my verb, to lose, as in to lose a lot of what the past has produced, may seem too strong here. Not all manuscripts were reformatted, printed, when movable type began to provide multiple copies of works hitherto available only a copy at a time. Yet we still have many manuscripts that predate and postdate Gutenberg. Ever-improving cataloging methods, as well as the use of the web to provide easily accessible information about manuscript holdings, will allow these manuscripts to play increasingly crucial roles in the intellectual life of our time. Is there a single person in this room who takes that sentence seriously? Manuscripts that used to play some sort of vital role in the culture of their period now play the role of footballs in the athletic contests of scholars, but with remarkably few exceptions, the bulk of what constituted letters before Gutenberg is as dead as Caligula, as Cassiodorus, as St. Augustine. I am, I think, not unaware of the exceptions, but however many you can throw at me in addition to those I know about, they represent but the tiniest slice through the enormous body of the beast whose death they have survived. For manuscript culture is dead. By far the vast majority of the manuscript works that once constituted it are gone, unread, unconsidered by all but the most rarefied academic intelligences of our era. Is it clear that I'm not saying that this is a good thing, but I do think it is a true thing? We are looking at an immediate prospect of repeating precisely the same process. We ought to know better. We've got the manuscripts passed as our, as our precedent. Are thoughtless and unsystematic the only ways for us to proceed? So that our need to conserve and preserve the human heritage in print. No piece of ephemera was too small for Tansel's plea, no third edition, no railroad timetable. In a review of his essay, I suggested that the Tansel Doctrine was not a useful roadmap to our conservatorial future. In an environment glutted by print and wanting a corresponding glut of money, staff, and time, not everything is going to be saved. Face that fact and start deciding what we might save, what we must save, what we can lose, and what, given sufficient resources, we might want to save if it survives to the time when we can get back to it. A prescription to save everything is effectively a license to save nothing. Nothing has changed my mind since that exchange. In July of 1998, this year, this month, 
writing in the New York Times under the headline, We Can't Save Everything. Deanna Markham, president of the Council of Library Resources, said much the same thing. Alas, she didn't, I think, say it very well. Moreover, her point of view is anathema to people who do what I do for a living and are dedicated to preserving our printed heritage. Unsurprisingly, therefore, she elicited a good deal of negative mumbling in the community in which I move, but I think she's right. A moment of, I am not now, nor have I ever been, may be necessary at this point. I do like books. I read them. I teach students about them, substantively in literature courses, methodologically in librarian, librarianship courses. I buy them. I keep them. I reread them. I use them. I have them on my floors. I do all of this personally, and then I do it all over again institutionally. I live a life up to my gizzard in books, and I love nearly everything about it and about them. But Markham is right and write about broader issues than conservation alone. We cannot save it all. And I am also convinced we don't really want to save it all, at least in secret, secret perhaps even from ourselves. If we think we can save it, if we think we want to save it, then we're going to make tremendous errors of judgment, allowing stuff to perish that we might actually have saved and want persuaded by our own illusion that we'll get to it in time or that we can reformat it before it becomes so old and antiquated that no one cares any longer. And we'll do all these things because we've been distracted by our illusion that it all needs saving. We must, in short, think about why some books live and why some books don't. We need to begin to ask whether we can, in any way, shape, manner, or form, begin to delineate criteria to help us distinguish between the quick and the dead, or between candidates for ongoing vivacity and artificial life support. Humility will be an aid here. We know that great literary minds in the last century discarded Dickens from libraries and paid remarkably little attention to Melville. In our own time, we know the literary non-existence of, say, Louis Lemoore and John Grisham know it frequently, without having bothered to do anything quite so low as to read them. And we are just as confident about our judgments as our forebears were about theirs. We might just be wrong, as they were. But ultimately, some effort at judgment and distinction, knowing that we will make mistakes, is required of us. Perfection is not in the cards. Effort, however, can be our mistakes will make for amusing or derisory stories in someone else's book, or in whatever form books eventually take, when their history comes to be told, if, by then, anyone still cares. By now, most of you will have realized, if you're still listening, which I find hard to imagine anybody is doing, <laughs> that what you are hearing is introductory to you will be unhappy to hear a much longer work. Some of it has already appeared or is about to as articles. Some remains written only in my head or completely unwritten, and all of it is heading, I hope, towards reconsideration of the issues here posed, now that I myself have seen the common thread in the, the, the essays that I've been publishing now for about the last five to eight years. My effort is to think about a set of interrelated questions. What libraries collect? 
what libraries don't collect why libraries make the decisions they make about what to collect, and why libraries are, and obviously, whether they should be, as devoted as they appear to be to impossible ideals of universal preservation, the goal of universal acquisition having been effectively, although not intellectually, abandoned long ago. Those ideals seem to me to reflect an imperialism transferred unreflectively from the political to the cultural sphere. They're not really much more workable in the one than they proved in the other. They seem to me also founded on a vast array of illusions, the unperishability of books being the first and perhaps the most determining of them. The value we all place on research is itself another assumption whose untestedness makes it, I would argue, the equivalent of another illusion, and perhaps nowhere so obviously as in the humanities. Of course, no one can look at everything, let alone master everything, an imperialistic turn of phrase, that. But one person can at least begin the process of looking at dead and dying books, Heroic reading, Nina Baim called it in a slightly different connection, and trying to categorize them as I've done very roughly earlier in this essay, and then evaluating them. I concentrated, as you may have noticed, on those kinds of books, literature and books about literature, in which I have something that approximates professional training as well as some breadth of experience. We, knew, we do need some realism about what our libraries do from people whose focus is not costs alone. We need some realism about the usefulness of books from people who do not think that they are a waste of time or money and who don't think that the World Wide Web or film are adequate replacements for them. We need some replacement about the lifespan of books from people who love them anyway. And we need, perhaps most of all, some realistic examination of a system of book culture that has overproduced many books that are going to die of age or neglect or from failure to be reformatted or, forgive me, from just plain badness. We must be willing and able in the course of that examination to try to articulate some means of distinguishing the books that must be saved and books that we can, because we will, live without. We need realistically to come to grips, in short, with limits and with mortality. We may even need to admit, counterintuitive as it may seem to us, that there are some books that not only will die, but also should. And then we need to start choosing. Thank you. Food for thought. <laughs> I hope you will all join the speaker at a reception to be <coughs> held immediately following in the first floor Alderman Staff Lounge, where I hope you'll also wish Michael Twyman happy birthday. Oh. <laughs> 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 
Mark. Yeah. 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 Yeah.